0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Gracious Father, be with us now. Come, uh, be present, living, and active. Uh, allow your word to interpret us um, and speak to us. Uh, by your grace, Lord, uh, let us receive all that you've given us and our, let, our, let our lives then be a living sacrifice uh, Uh, offered in praise and thanksgiving to you and we pray this in jesus name amen Amen. well good morning um this is the last i'm sorry i'm a little bit discombobulated this morning i feel like i've been behind the whole time uh uh, but so glad to be here it's the last one of this series something i've wanted to do for a couple of years and many of y'all been around for most of it if not all of it and i'm grateful to that it's been an unusual series for me and as much as i've tried to write and put some things out there. If you want a copy of the whole thing, I think it goes to 53 pages or something like that, so it became a little booklet. Um, feel free to email me. You know, I'm happy to send it to you if you would find it helpful. Um, uh, just trying to clarify the content of our conviction as we think about um, uh, what it means for us to be uh, sons and daughters of God, very specifically, um, what it means for us to be this part of the body of Christ, the, the Cathedral Church of the Advent, um, what it means to be Anglican, Re- reformationally minded, Anglican, It's a big part of where we are today, um, uh, standing in the tradition specifically of Thomas Cramner, for instance. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that kind of went into this to uh, to clarify a little bit of what um, what we believe and why, um, and, you know, certainly say what we believe, what I believe, what I've been given to believe, um, you know, it's an historical marker of kind of where my, my heart and my mind and my soul is, uh, this stage, 2019, I'm certainly I'm very aware of that, I'm not saying, trying to speak for anybody else, but um, it's been a privilege, it's been an honor, and I've really enjoyed it, and today, looking at, uh, uh, as the the note said, um, the Anglican Via Media, I'd be interested, what I heard that phrase? I'm sure some people in here have. What what comes to mind when you hear the Anglican via media? What does the via media mean? Just a translation. What what comes to mind? Because I want to see the middle way. The middle way. Uh, what's that? Middle of the road. The middle of the road. So so if you think about the Anglican middle way, what comes to mind? Be interested. Catholic and not, Puritan. not Catholic and not Puritan. Okay, interesting. Not you didn't say Protestant. You specifically said Puritan. That's good. Got an historical marker there. Um, anybody else? Just interested. So we'll talk about that. Um, adiaphora? Let's do that. Who knows what adiaphora is? Osvaldo should probably go last. Um, so Anybody? I heard the word? Okay, good, good. Jan, what's adiaphora mean? Um, it's a funny word. Yeah, um, or I may modify that slightly. Um, uh, specifically, the thing indifferent. So it still could be important, but it just isn't different vis-a-vis something else. So you might sometimes, uh, vis-a-vis the Bible, for instance, um, it's not uh, proscribed in the Bible. You must do this, um, but neither is it uh, prohibited. Um, you must not do this. So it could be important helpful, useful, beneficial, um, but it's just not uh, essential sometimes. So that's a little bit of what you were saying, where it's not critical, it's not essential. Um, And we're going to talk about um, adiaphora. And how some parts of the church have come through that um, in different ways. In fact, let's just dive in there. Um, So uh, what's in front of you today are the, the two sections. What is adiaphora? I had to sort of talk about that because when you think about The Anglican middle way, um, uh, one of the three ways going to describe that involves um, where Anglicans, and by that specifically Thomas Cramner, um, and what he left us in his 42 articles, his homilies, and his prayer book, how he he discerned the middle way um, between Wittenberg, Martin Luther, and Geneva, um, John Calvin, John Bullinger, and some others. Uh, that the middle way would be between those two principal parts of Protestantism in the 16th century, um, and ways it's been redefined uh, in subsequent history. Um, but adiaphora is one of those legs. So adiaphora, um, a thing indifferent, it is mentioned in Article 34 of the 34, 39 articles. Um, because you heard me say 42 articles, 39 articles. When they were first written, um, or at least first published, um, when they were first written, I think they were actually 49. When Cramner first published them, they were 42, and then he died, he was burned, and Mary came back into power. And then um, when Mary died and Elizabeth rose, uh, they were subsequently revised because some other things in history had happened where Luther had died as well, and, and some of the ways we were trying, we, the the, 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 the church of England, which became the Church or the Church in England, which became the Church of England, tried to be in conversation specifically with the Germans. Um, that historical moment had passed and so able to do some slight revisions and the forty two articles became the thirty nine articles. And so sometimes you'll hear Um, Specifically, when you talk about Cramner's articles, you'll talk about the 42 articles, but what we have are the 39 articles, because they were slightly revised. So, anyway, um, in the 39 articles, the Adiaphoric question um, is there. This isn't the whole article, but it says it's the third paragraph. Uh, Article 34 addresses the question of adiaphora within Anglicanism. It is not necessary, so something that's necessary or essential, would not be adiaphric. So he's trying to say this is what Adiaphra is. It is not necessary that traditions and ceremonies be in all places one or utterly like, for at all times they have been diverse and may be changed according to the diversity of countries, times, and men's manners, so that nothing be ordained against God's word. So here's one way Cramner, and then contrasting that with some other folks uh, that were his contemporaries, um, were trying to discern this question of of what is essential, what is not essential but helpful, and then what is um, prohibited. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church of the time, and still significantly to this day, um, uh, if you think of it in this way, if I had a board, if we could put um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church And then Anglicanism, represented by Thomas Cramner. And then down here we could say, uh, somewhat unfair, but today's Presbyterianism, the inheritors of folks like John Knox especially. He would be the best um, example of that, a contemporary of Cramner. uh, Or subsequent Puritanism, which I think is what Shannon was getting at. How they all answered this question about Adiaphora. So you can see that. Catholicism, Anglicanism, and let's say Puritanism. Uh, And then the question of doctrine. And then the question of ceremony, or how God's people, when they're gathered in the church, that we looked at last week, Ecclesia, um, how are they going to order themselves? Whether that's the question of bishops, or overseers, or things like vestries, or things like sessions. Do you have priests, or presbyters, or do you have elders? Um, where These words were, were the same words in the scripture, but were, were um, uh, noted in different ways. So that's one aspect of the question, is how are you going to order yourself? Church order, church governance but also just how are you going to order your corporate worship. We also looked at that um, last week, and whether that's you can use um, like a pulpit frontal, you know, the cloth that goes in front of the pulpit that's not in the Bible. Um, and so some would say, well, if it's not in the Bible, we shouldn't do it. Um, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Others would say, well, it's not in the Bible, but it's not not in the Bible, and it's beneficial. It's not, it's not going against any other principle of the Bible and so we find it helpful at times and so with a lot of discernment, we're going to allow it and that would be adiaphora. So the questions of doctrine or the questions of ceremony, that's what I want to call it. So the Roman Catholic Church on the question of doctrine would uh, say that they were normative. Difference here between normative and regulative and that's down here in one of these these notes. It's very helpful because most of the time you think about it in terms of worship the normative and regulative principle of worship, but you can also think about it in terms of doctrine, or in the conceptualization of an ideal. Um, normative, as the word sounds, where um, the Bible norms, or other, say, an authority could be the Constitution of the United States, or the canons of a nonprofit organization, or anything else like that. Um, but for our sake, the the Bible norms are our doctrine. Norms are behavior. Norms are. Uh, our morals, our moral questions, um, as we face, what about cryogenics, for instance? Um, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, so we gotta do something. Um, gotta come up with a question. So we got normative, where the verb is norming, or regulative, where it regulates, where it's very specific, and it says, do this, don't do that. So we've got the normative and the regulative principles. I really should have gotten a piece of paper for this class. I didn't know I was gonna do this. So, Roman Catholic Church, are they normative? Or uh, is the Bible normative for doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church? Or is it regulative? It's a little bit of a semi-rhetorical question. If you want to venture a guess, you're more than welcome. Um, Normative. normative. Um, Because, say, uh, the extra-canonical, meaning not specifically in the canon of Scripture, ideas and understandings about Mary. For instance, the Bible never says, And on this day, under the reign of so-and-so, uh, Mary died, and she was buried with her forebears, you know, at Miramah, something else like that. We don't have that about Mary, so it doesn't say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, died. So, extra canonically, uh, the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary. To uh, use just one example, that Mary was assumed into heaven, something like Elijah or um, what's his name, Enoch. Thank you very much. Um, that Mary was assumed into heaven, like uh, uh, like Enoch and Elijah. Uh, which would be an extra-canonical doctrine. Um, The Roman Catholic Church answers that question. The Bible norms our doctrine, to use that one example. Um, And then also it norms the question of uh, how we're going to order ourselves in worship. Um, The Bible doesn't say don't have pulpit frontals, the thing that goes in the front of a pulpit, and so we're going to go ahead and allow it because it's still beneficial and helpful and a tradition in the church defined as the living faith of the dead Uh, can see it as as, as, as not being prohibited by uh, uh, and sometimes helpful to the people of God, not prohibited by the scripture and helpful to the people of God. So the Catholic Church is normative-normative. Let's go down here to the Presbyterian Presbyterian tradition uh, exhibited by Knox and the Puritans. Regulative-regulative where the Bible regulates doctrine. Um, The question of Mary, for instance, they would say we can't go there. Um, We can only go as far as God's word is written, somewhere in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I think. Um, And we'll go no further. Um, And So the Bible regulates doctrine. Um, We're going to have the doctrine of the church, the dogma of the church, to be very specifically uh, uh, regulated, fenced, boundaries are established in terms of how far we'll go, and then also regulative in terms of what we're going to do in ter- with worship. Um, so we take it to an extreme, and some churches would say well, there's no organ that's mentioned in the Bible, so they don't have organs or modern instrumentation. Only the instruments that are mentioned specifically in the Bible, like a lyre or a lute or a tambourine or something else like that, are the ones that can be used. So regulative, regulative. Aha! Anglican via media. Thomas Cramner and some others. How do you think Cramner decided the question, normative or regulative, around the question of dogma and how did, or doctrine? And how did he answer the question around um, ceremonies? Regulative on doctrine, normative on ceremonies. It's, that's the middle. That's part of the middle. Um, we'll say that's the whole middle. Where Cramner would say, and we see this in the articles again on, um, say, the, uh, the canons of the Old Testament and also list the Apocrypha, uh uh, the extra canonical books um the catholic church recognizes but cranmer and the anglicans would then say these are useful and beneficial at times for teaching but not for the formation of doctrine um uh but we didn't go any further we don't go any further than what the bible says on doctrine but a much more generous question this is also where luther went um uh on the question of how we're going to order ourselves whether it's in terms of church governance or in the way that we order ourselves for worship or corporate governance or something else like that so that's adiaphora a thing that's indifferent doesn't mean it's not important um uh but it's a thing that's not specifically mentioned in scripture but it's also not prohibited by scripture um uh where a massive amount this is the final word i'd say and then we can see which questions you would have uh What that leaves us with is the need for wisdom, (laughs) is the need for a lot of prayer, a lot of prayerful discernment, where we would ask humbly that the Lord would lead us. And Cramner and Knox really went round on this question in a hard way in the famous story of a black rubric. I don't know was going to say this. Um, But Cramner's first prayer book in 1549, for instance, and it was changed in 1552. um, And then at the last minute... Um, a guy named John Knox, who's a fascinating figure, um, huge man, a Scotsman, uh, founder of Presbyterianism in some ways. Many of us went there last year and saw him, uh, saw saw he was buried, in, and and uh, uh, in Scotland. Um, looked at what Cramner had written and saw that the people were going to kneel to receive communion. He said, this smacks of you know Roman Catholicism, of papistry, he called it, um, uh, because it's going to imply the veneration of the sacrament. This can't be. He wanted to regulate. Um, Cramner said, it doesn't imply that. It's just that now, look at my words. You know We come before God. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we fall on our knees and we worship and adore. It doesn't prescribe it, but it doesn't prohibit it either. It's just it's just a position. You can stand if you want to. You can kneel if you want to. Uh, and then Knox said, nope, it's got to be, um, it can't be kneeling because uh, the, the Bible doesn't say that. And then Cramner's response was like, well, if you wanted to be that, John, we should all be lying down. Because at the Last Supper, you know, you're reclining and he lays on Jesus. This all went on, truly. 1553, right before you know they both died. Uh, are soon thrown in prison um, uh, and they went back and forth but Knox won and what's called the famous black rubric was the book was already published printed and so they just stuck a sticker in the back and they said and this is what you should do and it implies no veneration of the sacraments and so forth so that's how this gets thrown out and vestments candles organs um, vestries do you call them priests ministers all of these take a lot of prayerful and humble discernment in order to discern the question about adiaphora. Um, but we're clear that um, dogmatically, doctrinally, in terms of what we believe, we go no farther than what is specifically mentioned in the Bible. The word regulates our belief. Um, but as we are gathered underneath the idea of Christian freedom, um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, in a footnote that I included here, talks a lot about some of what Zach preached on, the weaker brother, and how... Paul, very interestingly, with the two examples of circumcision of Titus and Timothy, how he answered it differently. He said, you can't do this to Titus. I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you go back under the law. Um, who, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But then in Acts 16, it's like, yeah, Timothy can be circumcised. That's fine. It's no. It's okay. Um, and it's this adiaphoric question with prayerful discernment where uh, 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 Paul, the Apostle Paul, was exercising the same idea. That was important to Cranmer to see that same spirit um, within uh, within his church. So, so, questions on adiaphora? Now you know what adiaphora is. Um, discernment is the important word. Um, yeah, Libby? Around, the, Sometimes this um, can be used as a or It they, really interests someone who really does it. Uh, God's wooing them to come to himself. And how do you, as uh, the um, knowledgeable one, uh, whoever, uh, that's being approached and have this information in this wisdom? How do you determine when somebody is genuinely, intellectually, and wants to know, or when they're wanting you to say something? It's a great question. How am I going to answer that, Libby? Um, Um, well, be quick to, quick to listen and slow to speak. Um, uh, I say this very humbly, again, exercising humble and prayerful discernment. Um, as I mentioned before, I, I do, I actively pray this prayer. Lord, show me who I'm speaking to. Um, am I speaking to the old Adam or the new creature? Remember that's some of what we've been talking about in this, this class. Um, great example. Credit where credit is due. It's John Lineball, a good friend of mine. You hear me talk about him a lot. Um, uh, uh, great example of somebody coming to your office, uh, a pastor's office, somebody like me, and just sort of saying, "Hey, can I ask you a quick question?" Sure, sure. Come on in. We got a couple of minutes. Um, what do you think about abortion? <laughs> you know, you'd be an idiot. But how quickly I, the idiot, fall into the trap of answering the question as if it was just. Neutrally offered, without being slow to speak, quick to listen. In order to listen, I have to know who's speaking and ask, you know, who's speaking? Why is this person knocking at my door saying, hey, can I ask you a question? What do you think about abortion? Very different circumstance if this is somebody who's on her way to the doctor to have an abortion versus somebody who's on her way home having just had one. I mean whole different conversation so I use that extreme example Libby for your really really good question to try to ask myself slow down (laughs) you crazy child who's speaking and make that discernment yeah Mm. slow to anger yeah hmm got a lot to do with it. Absolutely, I could go on about that. But we'll do that for another class. That'd be fun. So, um, um, so the via media um, or the via media, um, uh, uh, the middle way, um, from this imaginary chart that you see up here. Uh, one one reason I put this in here is is uh, one of my goats. Um, not as in the greatest of all time, but just the thing that gets my goat um, uh, or a soapbox is. It's the recasting of history and are um, some other ways. It's in the historical record now, but the Via Media is not uh, the the third way, fancy word, the tertium quid, um, uh, between Protestantism, broadly speaking, and Roman Catholicism. A guy named John Henry Newman had that idea. Um, uh, you hear his name bannered about some. He was a, an Anglican divine or really not really a divine. Um, uh, uh, founder of the Oxford Movement, the Tractarian Movement, the same thing gets the name from this. These uh, kind of like what I've written here. He wrote a series. He and uh, six others, I think it was 90 tracts um, called Tracts for Our Times. Um, two of them were called the Via Media, the Via Media One, the Via Media Two. It's in there. I think 1834. It's right there in the middle of Oxford, um, uh, where it's where Anglo-Catholicism sort of had its had its birth, not just rebirth, but just its birth. Uh, and he wanted to kind of erroneously take a guy named Richard Hooker, which I think is what Shannon was thinking about, who wrote against um, or tried to make a corrective against Puritanism um, uh, in the in sort of the second century of Anglicanism, to, uh, to come up with some way of thinking about what is Anglicanism, as it does have this propensity to find a middle ground. Um, Elizabeth came to power the long reign of Queen Elizabeth because the church and the state in our tradition, or are intertwined, at least in the early days, where the Elizabethan settlement was there, and you had all these ways that Elizabeth brought peace, where there was all these warring factions and religious wars and Protestantism. Meanwhile, Germany was tearing itself apart, and the Turks were marauding and and killing people, and, 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 and Protestants were fighting... Uh, Catholics and Catholics were fighting Protestants and Protestants were fighting Protestants and burning each other and drowning each other. The Anabaptists were being drowned all over the place. It was just crazy, crazy, crazy time. And Elizabeth said, enough. We're going to find a way through this Well, having to do all of that. So there is this sense of being able to find a middle way. I'm trying to avoid using the word compromise because it's not quite that. Um, but what is it then? Because everybody, some want to sort of recast that to say the Anglican ethos. You hear that a lot. Um, uh, is the reasonable efforts of reasonable men to find the middle way and the compromise, you know, as a, as a matter of principle, that if you take two extremes, the best way is always going to be in the middle. Um, and you can take that ad infinitum, and that's historic Anglicanism. Um, that's our ethos, that's what we do. And that's not true. It's not true. I want to be really emphatic putting my flag in the ground to say that's not Anglicanism, um, or at least not historic Anglicanism. It could be what some conceive of it. That could be fair enough there just to think that if anything's going and things shift over the centuries and the years, uh, that it's fine that you know the two extremes keep drifting, which means Anglicanism just keeps moving with the drift and it goes along. I want to say, no, Anglicanism has a root, has a flag. It put its identity down somewhere. Remember regulative on doctrine? So it's a pretty deep root right there to be able to say then what is the middle way that historic Anglicanism, now introducing this phrase, reformational Anglicanism, might define itself by. If it's not what Newman thought it was and if it's not what 20th and 21st century Anglicans often want to think of as as the supposed prize of reasonableness is the, the middle, the moderation of all things in between the extremes, if it's not any of that and what is it? And I mentioned it earlier. Now we've got um, we've got adiaphora, where we're regulative on doctrine, but normative on uh, ceremony and order. Um, Anglicanism uh, finds this unique way here in both directions between the Protestant centers, um, Luther and Calvin. Lutheranism, Calvin really reforms is a better word than Calvinism. Uh, where, and riffing on somebody else, a guy named Dewey Wallace, uh, Anglicanism, this is why it's a riff, because he wouldn't have said this, uh, is Lutheran in its soteriology. And that's almost all of part one and two in these, in these, uh, that we've been talking about the last six weeks. Um, soteriology is the big fancy word for, for salvation. That scripture, uh, contains all things necessary to salvation. That salvation is what the Bible is primarily engaged with. That the proper subject of theology—that's Luther's phrase—is the sinning human in a relationship with the justifying and saving God in the location of Scripture. So it's a Scripture-centered uh, uh, understanding of sin, of grace, of faith, of repentance and belief, of 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 the law and the gospel being the two words of God, which to do which do two very different but necessary things. Um, The first word is the office of conviction, the second word is the office of of resurrection and freedom of life, um, and then orients itself into a a life-oriented vocation of wonder, awe, thanksgiving, and praise. That's all what he meant by soteriology. And it's very much rooted in the understanding and the theology of Luther. Kramner became a Lutheran in, what, 1533, I think? Right before he became Archbishop of Canterbury. Didn't want to do it because he knew he was going to die. Um, They said, "I'll go," but he had just converted. So with that, but then uh, not didn't follow Luther in his understanding of the sacraments, Um, and so that's where we were reformed in our understanding of the sacraments. The idea of not the yeah Oswald. All right, let me do that. Let me just say I'm going to be Lutheran, Reformed Lutheran, Um, Lutheran in soteriology. That's Bible, grace, and faith. uh, reformed understanding of the sacraments. Um, Luther wanted to emphasize the real presence of Christ, something like he wouldn't say this, neither would Lutherans, but consubstantiation, where something happens to the elements—the bread, the wine, and the water—in Holy Communion and, and Baptism, where when they're consecrated, they become something other than they were. So their substance, consubstantiation, is changed, uh, and that has—that's the—that's the efficacious work. That's what brings a new effect onto the people who, uh, who partake of it. That would be Luther, real presence. Calvin said, no, not quite spiritual presence. Christ is still really present, just not corporally. Spiritually, he is where the spirit is always conjoined with the word, because the word brings faith. Uh, and so a sacrament is never absent from the Bible, from the word, regulative on doctrine. Um, and those two things together then make it where the, the, the act... The act of change doesn't happen when you say and then this water twinkle twinkle twinkle, but then when the water hits the baby or more. It's seen especially in the um, in communion. Take and eat this in thy heart, not in your stomach. By what faith with thanksgiving, and so in the consumption of faith, then the recipient is changed. So the moment of reception is the high point for Cramner's communion, not the moment of consecration. Um, where you break the host or something else like that. The bells will ring in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, cring, because that's where, you know, Christ is broken. And it doesn't do that in a Calvinistic or an Anglican, historic Anglican context. It would be, you know, the eating is where the bells would ring. So, Reformed, I mean Lutheran soteriology, Reformed sacramentology, and then Lutheran adiaphora. That's why we had to talk about adiaphora. Because then we say, well, how do you want to regulate in, uh, our norm uh, the way that we gather? Structured with bishops or not? Um, Candles on a table or not? Um, Is an organ okay? Um, Can we wear vestments? Uh, uh, Auricular confession? Lots of these things have all been a part of that. So the Ankin Middle Way is the middle way between Protestantism. It's a Protestant way, uh, at least as Cramner conceived it. And I want to say this is what I think the Advent believes. Uh, uh, Lutheran, Reformed, Lutheran the way between Anglicanism, a robust, uh, consequential, pastorally sensitive, gracious, Bible-centered expression of the Protestant faith. That's what that's what it is. Um, so, that's it. Questions? Osvaldo, you want to say something? Thank you. That was so helpful. Uh, I was thinking about the uh, that the salvation, conception of salvation is more Lutheran. I, was, I read the 39 articles in election predestination. Yeah. I compared it to Calvin under Westminster Confession. And Cramer spoke about election only in a positive way. Yep, 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 yep. Says, Very astute. Whereas the other is some are chosen and some are damned. Yeah. I much rather like I don't know. I, Osvaldo, just, music to my ears. I completely agree. Um, that's where when you... This is not going to make sense. It's going to be very boring to most people in the room, but who cares? Um, I, this is fun to me. I really like this. Thank you, Osvaldo. Yeah, when you look at that one, it's the longest article. And you read in between the lines, and it's the sweetest doctrine which issues the most comfort, um, or something like that. Um, the most comfortable and sweetest doctrine. Uh where it's got the echoes of a Lutheran understanding of the single predestination, where the single will, the single versus double, what does that mean? It's the single will of God that all would be saved, um, that none would perish, coming out of Isaiah and Hebrews. It's not to say that hell doesn't exist. It's just that we go as far as the word goes and we go no further. And this is a big difference between Luther and Calvin, um, where it wants to say, I don't, we don't know. We don't know. And it stops. It so says, God knows. But God wills much within within his God wills much that he does not reveal in his word it comes out of Luther's and bondage of the will and that's what Cramner just sort of read marked learned, and inwardly digested um, which is why it's a minority report fully you should know that um, this this nail that I'm hitting pretty hard that Cramner sort of absorbed a Lutheran way of thinking when I say Lutheran I mean the, he he, he, he he absorbed the best of Luther, um, uh, and this I think it was expressed most memorably in that really interesting article on election, which is very gracious. The gracious, electing love of God, wooing uh, the sinner and the sin-sick soul to himself for hope, health, and healing, and salvation itself. Um, it's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable yeah, yeah uh, Joel? You, know, um, you seem to I think widely confine your discussion of the media to things that are either doctrinal or theological or theological sort of process. but is there are there any ways in which some things that Elizabeth I did that can be seen to be purely political also constitute a component of what you could call. I mean, give anything of specific in mind um yeah yeah she under elizabeth you know what we have in the right one service still in the 79 book which we still use the words of administration when when, when the minister or the priest gives us the bread or the wine what, what do they say help me here um the body of our lord jesus christ given for thee. Um, and then it continues take and eat this and feed on him with thy heart by faith with thanksgiving uh, the 49 said the first the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you the 52 said the second take and eat this and remember it's that Christ died for you and feed on, him by, with, uh, feed on him in thy heart by faith and with thanksgiving and Elizabeth just said we're going to do both I don't want to make a decision that's a little bit unfair obviously to say that we're just going to do both but that's an example of that compromise. Didn't want to make a decision between one or the other, so let's just do both because neither were exclusive of the other. One has more tones, a little bit more Roman, not not necessarily. So there's some of that. If that's kind of what you're drifting towards, um, uh, and that that's that that is, so I guess yes, part and parcel. You know, it's the the tone of the church which was coming out of a lot of bloodshed. Um, uh, wanting to find a way to say, like, let's think about what's essential, what's not essential, and have charity in the rest. Uh, I don't know if that helps. Is it, it, this general topic always a good opportunity to refute the, the inaccurate characterization of Richard Hooker's theology of the so-called three letters? Yep, yep. Uh, I think so. Um, but some people will come back and be like, so what he didn't say it, the spirit of Hooker is what we're the inheritors of. And I now I'll, I'll accept that, but at least want to say, like, historically, like Hooker didn't say that. Hooker was a Protestant. He wasn't trying to say Anglicanism is something other than Protestantism. That's very clear. When about reason, put in a different order. scripture, reason, tradition. Um, um I don't think so. I think it was Scripture, and it's not even sort of the... I don't know. I know Cramner said it this way. I think Hooker did too, because I think Hooker got like Cramner. There's Scripture, and then where Scripture is silent, then it goes to tradition, meaning you know, it's not just what comes lately, but what is the church, what of other faithful men, the living faith of the dead, the faith that was once delivered for all to the saints, Jude 3. That is what we go to second. And then lastly... And still, often cryogenics would be one example, isn't that right? Cry—is that the whole freezing thing? Is that right? Did I say that right? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Medicine, modern medicine, nuclear medicine, uh, human reason—which you know, I hope 53 pages are saying—we don't think the brain is a bad organ, um, uh, but we just always are suspicious of it because it is infected with sin, you know, shot through all the way. Um, so we don't—we uh, don't go there first. The bells have tolled. Let me pray. Gracious God, um, uh, correct me where I'm wrong um, and let your uh, word go forth and be uh, gracious to us. Uh, uh, save us from our sins and free us to a life of, uh, of free abundance in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank, y'all. Thank you all. See you soon. Thank you.